This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study to show yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible Line in this new year and so glad that we can be together. If you are a first-time listener to WAGP here at 88.7, whether you're live streaming through the Internet, which we do around the world, but also locally in Georgia and South Carolina, you can call us with your questions. The number is 877-WAGP, the call letters, WAGP 980, or uh, again, locally, it's 843 525 one eight five nine. When you call with a question that you have as you've been studying God's Word, maybe it's a passage that's challenging you, or you're looking for a biblical counsel as it relates to your family or ministry or local assembly, uh, you can go on the air live. We always give uh, preference to live callers, or if you want to remain a little bit more anonymous, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, and they'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've been out for a few weeks, so we've got a number of questions that have come up, so let's get to them. Okay. Kelly would like to know that she has some questions regarding why we as believers don't obey the commandments that state that we're to follow the feasts in the Old Testament. Jesus did as his disciples, but uh, we don't. Well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, it's a question that concerns what is the relationship of the Old Testament law to uh, God's people today. There are different administrations, or what sometimes is called dispensations, where God works at different times in human history. God never changes. He is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the manner in which he deals with particular individuals can change. And so I doubt any of you brought an animal sacrifice to your local assembly last week and gave a a lamb to the pastor and asked him to put it on the pulpit. Why? Because uh, the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Christ has been offered. Now, that's not to say that there's not benefit and lessons and instruction from even passages that deal with the ceremonial law, because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. But when you read God's Word, it's important first you always ask, to whom is he addressing? Is it a group of people? Like, is it the Jewish people? Uh, Is it the people of Jerusalem in a particular locale? Is it the Babylonians? Or is it New Covenant believers? Or is he maybe not writing to a group of people? Is he writing to a particular individual? Like, Saul, David, Solomon, Mary, Paul. It's very important you ask, who is the original audience? Because you have to recognize that everything in the Bible that is written does not necessarily directly apply to you. Sometimes it's specifically uh, geared towards an individual. So, for instance, there are things that we might call descriptive and other things that we would call prescriptive. Um, many details in the Bible are descriptive of an event or a person. 
And it doesn't mean that by that description that God has written that he is prescribing for you to follow a particular activity. For instance, Abraham lied about Sarah being his uh, wife. Um, And uh, he said it was his sister. Well, you know, God in describing that activity is not giving you an example to follow. God sometimes writes about sins in the word of God. Uh, Abraham, likewise, in obedience and in faith, attempted to offer Isaac there on top of Mount Moriah. Uh, That was descriptive, but it's not an example for us to follow. So when you come to the Old Testament feasts, there is, you know, an important question to ask. Do we as the church follow the Old Testament feasts? There are seven in the Bible, four that came in the spring of the year, three that came in the fall of the year. Uh, why, why don't we follow them? Our church certainly doesn't. It's because we're ignoring what God has said. No, because of what Paul, for instance, wrote here in Colossians. And this is the passage that comes to my mind, Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there are a number of things in the Bible that are shadows that have been fulfilled in Jesus. So I already mentioned, you know, on Passover, someone would bring a lamb. The lamb would be brought in on Sunday, not by accident that Christ enters into Jerusalem on what we typically call Palm Sunday, that was the day the Passover lambs would be brought in, and they would be examined over the course of the week. And of course, Christ that week is examined by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, and of course, they could not find a single blemish in him, but ultimately, he becomes the Passover lamb. He uh, does in time and space what God had prophesied by type, by illustration, by direct revelation, he became the Passover lamb. And so Paul will say, Christ, our Passover has been crucified for us. So we don't celebrate Passover as such. In fact, when you look at the seven feasts, the four fall feasts, it's not by accident that Christ dies on Passover. He is the literal Passover lamb, that he is buried on the feast of unleavened bread. Leaven is what gave the bread life. And Jesus is in a tomb on that Saturday. He's dead literally, actually, physically dead, his body is in a tomb. But it's not, again, by accident that the next day was called the Feast of First Fruits, and the Lord Jesus was literally, actually resurrected from the grave. And after his resurrection, the Bible says a handful of other people were raised, and that was in keeping with First Fruits, and it was looking towards the great harvest that is still in the future. And then again, it's not by accident that on the 50th day of the Feast of Feasts or the Feast of Weeks that the Holy Spirit of God is sent on what we call Penta 50 Pentecost. So the spring feasts were all a fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus was going to do. There's still three fall feasts that will be fulfilled in reference to his second coming, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as it relates to the Jewish people, and Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. So with that said, because Jesus came not to break the law, but to keep the law, you would expect him to observe the feast. And so he was there. 
when it was prescribed for every pious Jew, there was at least three feasts that they had to attend. And Jesus was always there at those feasts as God dictated because he came to obey the law. He perfectly obeyed it and then ultimately dies as the payment for our sin. So the harder question comes, well, it appears at times that the Apostle Paul is uh, indeed of following the feasts. It appears that, you know, on Pentecost, they're in the temple. Why are they in the temple? Because that's where a pious Jew would be at 9 a.m. in the morning, the prescribed prayer time on that uh, high and holy day, the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks when Pentecost takes place. Now, <laughs> understand there's a, there's a gradual line that begins to change. Uh, at first, you know, the church is all Jewish, 100% Jewish, but eventually, Acts 10, uh, the Gentiles begin to turn to Jesus as well, and they come to faith. And, and so you have a Jewish-Gentile church, and with time, it's more Gentile, as is today, than it is Jewish, though there's coming a day in the future when that is going to reverse again during the time of the Great Tribulation. But the Apostle Paul also made this statement. So you find Paul, like, you know, making a Nazarite vow because he was committed to the law? No. But because he was all things to all men. Listen to this verse. He said, For though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though myself not being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, though not myself without being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, then I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I might by all means win some. So Paul wanted to win people to Jesus. And if it meant without an ounce of hypocrisy in his soul, uh, observing a Jewish feast in order to point people to Christ, then that was a wise thing to do. Uh, We have a missionary that Community Bible Church supports in Israel, and he has a Jewish congregation along with Gentiles. Some Arabs come who have been one to Jesus as well. But when the fall feast and the spring feast come, they observe them, not in the exact same way, because obviously you cannot fully observe, observe the, the fall feast in the way they were originally done. There's no temple. And so there's obviously limitations, but what does he do? He, he teaches and he preaches what those feasts meant and how Jesus fulfilled them. So God doesn't call us to follow the feasts. That's part of Uh, a specific command given to a specific group of people, unless you are being all things to all men that you might win some. That is a fantastic question, and I hope that helps you and gets you thinking. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we just had someone call in wondering, is it possible that there is life on another planet? In Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is it possible there is life on a different planet which would be included in the heavens? I don't think so. Um, all of creation is centered around planet Earth, and all of the future creation is centered around the future new heaven and the new Earth. So God has made planet Earth central to his purposes, and I don't think it's by accident. You know, someone say, well, why did God even create the rest of the planets and the rest of the universe? Listen, 
what we see is we learn with every decade that goes by is just a portion of all that God made. And why did he make it all? Well, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's an expression of his incredible uh, power and might, his eternal attributes, his divine nature, Paul says, are clearly seen through the things that he has made. But neither is it by accident that when man sinned on planet Earth, death came throughout the whole universe. So stars burn out, if I can use that non-scientific description. On all the planets, there's no life. Death, 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 death. The whole universe shouts death. Why? Because through sin, death entered into the cosmos, into the universe. So no, there is no life. There's not some, you know, Martian out there who's going to show up. This is it. And someday God is going to take the heavens. That's all that he has created in the stellar atmosphere along with all the planets and earth, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The current heavens and earth, there is unrighteousness, there's fallenness. All of creation, Romans 8 says, groans and moans looking for its redemption. So um, there's a lot of people, I think it's satanic as much as anything, who want us to think, oh, there's life on other planets, this, is, this isn't it, to take away from what God has done in time and space through Jesus Christ here on planet Earth. Very good. Anthony from Mount Vernon, Maine writes, Our church is currently searching for a pastor. A question has arisen as to whether women pastors are acceptable according to the Scripture. There seems to be a conflict between the prohibition in 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35, and the allowance in Titus 2, verses 3 and 4, to teach women and to prophesy in Acts 2.17 and 1 Corinthians 11.5. As a leader in our local church, I want to know what the will of God is. Thank you for your help in understanding this matter. Well, we broadcast out of WCBI in Maine. It's a 100,000-watt station, and we're glad that Anthony in Vernon, Maine, is is listening. Uh, let me uh, respond. You have a live caller? No, no, I was saying BCI. Oh, WBCI. Well, I said CBI. Yeah, right. WBCI. Thank you. Um God's word is very clear that men and women are distinctly different. And those distinctions people want to habitually erase in the day that we live in. But God made them male and female. That's what the scripture affirms right in the opening uh, verses of the book of Genesis. With that said, he made us differently. And he gives different roles in the church. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, which you reference here for me, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, if you want the long answer, and it's an hour and five minutes long, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, Anthony, and you can do a search by Scripture, and you can go to this passage in 1 Timothy 2. And a couple years back, I did two back-to-back messages, and I literally walked through every passage in the Bible that people use to justify women being pastors. Let me just say first, in pausing while we're on this text, that some people think this is a 
culturally mandated text and only applied to the first century or that it was geographically restricted to the church at Ephesus because maybe there was some kind of a problem in that particular church. And so Paul was uh, saying, look, you can't do it in Ephesus. But you really cannot exegete the passage faithfully and accurately and come to that conclusion. And that's why for over 1,900 years of church history, there were no women pastors. Why? Because they were a bunch of chauvinists for 1,900 years? No, because God had spoken plainly. So first, he takes it back to the order of creation. God didn't make Adam first. He made Eve first. In so doing, he made Eve to be his helpmate, the one who comes alongside. We are incomplete as men without our wives. God gives us a wife if he's called us to be married, and she's our completer. She's our complementer. We desperately need them. Uh, In addition, he reminds us that it was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve. So Eve fell into deception. Adam didn't fall into deception. Adam's sin was worse. He sinned with his eyes wide open. But Eve fell into deception because she stepped out of the God-given, God-ordained role that Adam was to be his, her head. And so the Bible speaks of headship both in the home and the church. And when we affirm that men and women are equal, but they're complementary in the roles they play, we typically call that complementarianism. And you should want a pastor who teaches complementarianism. The problem now is that people are redefining the term, just like the term inerrancy. You have cooperative Baptists across the state of South Carolina, really in different places in the United States, that now use the term inerrancy, but they uh, have a different dictionary by which to define the term. They don't define it biblically the way the term is defined in the Bible, that the Bible in every word, right down to the smallest letter, right down to the tense of a verb, right down to the difference between a singular noun and a plural noun is absolutely inspired and without a single error. Uh, Cooperative Baptists deny that. Uh, So people use terms, but they mean different things. Well, God is very clear that men and women are equal in the fact that they are equal and yet have different roles does not in any way diminish who God created them to be. If it, if it did, then Christ is less than God. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11? He said, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. So we talk about the man being the head of the woman. We must not diminish the fact that Christ is the head of every man. And ultimately, guys, we give an account to our Lord for our headship. So he said, understand that Christ is the head of every man, He's not just some free wheeler, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, in any good biblical theology, you know that the Father and the Son are equal. The Bible affirms that. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. We're equal in nature. But with that said, it still affirms that the Father is the head of Christ. So when the Bible speaks of headship, it's not diminishing equality, but it is even within the Trinitarian God, there are different roles that each member plays. They're equal, but they have different roles. And so it is not only in the home, the home, the man is called to be the head of the woman. And so some people affirm male headship in the home, but they deny it in the church. So they're really not complementarian. Complementarianism affirms the equality of men and women, both in the home and in the church. 
uh, in that we're equal, but we have different roles. And so God has not ordained women to be pastors. And then if you're uncertain of that, again, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Uh, They're added almost a thousand years after the Bible's completed to help us find our way around it a little more quickly. Uh, Beginning in chapter 3 in the next verse, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. He must be. He must be. All these male pronouns all the way through. For instance, he must be the husband of one wife. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be a pastor. She can't be. So Paul affirms not only what she can't do, but then he affirms what she does do that she is preserved, she's sanctified, she is set apart. How? Through the bearing of children. Why? Because God does not diminish the role that children have in this world. God esteems children highly, and we are too as well. And they are so important to him that he wants a mother to be there for that children, to build into their lives. My wife will often say, yeah, I can teach men, just little men. But she's shaped at least four men to be leaders in our culture and and a daughter as well. And my daughter in turn is shaping the children that God has entrusted to her. And so this is really, really, really important. Now, you mentioned another text. And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so you mentioned here uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so let me just say a word about prophecy and what it is and what it is not. The term prophesy can be used um, in a way where someone literally preaches. And women can preach to other women and to women and children. And so Titus 2 affirms older women teaching the next generation. In 1 Corinthians 14, uh, it's a qualified silence. The women who are to keep silent, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they must not be permitted to speak, but are to be subject themselves as to the law as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, how do I know that's a qualified s- silence? Because of what Paul has just said and what he says in other passages. He speaks, for instance, that when a woman prays and prophesies in church, she must have her head covered. Well, that's speaking. What do you mean? Uh, she must be silent? Well, again, it's a qualified silence. And so Paul is very, very clear. There are some things that, you know, when the church gets together, a woman, just like a man and just like children, they're commanded to sing and psalm in their hearts one to another. That's speaking. The woman is called to prophesy with her head covered. And so remember now that when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, most of the Bible had not been written. And so sometimes God would speak Scripture through a man or through a woman where they became a direct conduit of God. You couldn't go and say, well, what does Paul say about marriage? And, well, he hadn't written Ephesians yet. Or what does Paul say on such and such a subject? Or what was John's eschatology in reference to the seven churches? He hadn't written about it yet. So very often God would give direct revelation where a woman or a man could stand up in church and they would basically say, thus saith the Lord. And they spoke scripture and it was direct revelation. Now, how could you trust it? Well, you had to test the spirits to see if they'd be of God because Satan is a great imitator. 
But in addition, the Bible said everything is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so the spirits of the prophets were subject to other prophets, Paul says. So you might want to just read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 just as a unit. That section would be helpful to you. But go to searchthescriptures.org, and I go through every single passage, whether it's Deborah, whether it's uh, Moses' sister Miriam, whether it's the seven daughters of Philip, and I go through every single passage in the Bible that people use to justify women pastors. And what we're doing today in the church is detrimental to families. So some of you know we have dropped focus on the family, not because we dislike James Dobson. He's not a part of it. He has left focus some years ago, and we still broadcast him. But focus on the family has been wavering on some critical issues. And, you know, when we air a focus broadcast, people assume, well, Pastor Carl, you know, and the elders of Community Bible Church, they obviously like this ministry. And that's not to say that I agree 1,000% with every speaker on the radio. But if someone is like departing on what we would consider a critical issue, and so we could not trust the vetting that they were doing. So they had a Washington, D.C. pastor who has gay support groups in his local assembly. He has women pastors on other campuses modeling before other young men and women, the opposite of what focus on the family should be endorsing. So these are important issues, and they're critical issues. And if we don't get a handle on them, our churches will suffer. So my suggestion to this brother from Maine is maybe your pulpit committee or however you're structured, say, listen, let's approach this with an open mind. Let's listen to these two messages. And if you've got some counter messages you want to listen to, Let's listen to them, but let's have some parameters in terms of what kind of person that we're looking for to fill the pulpit. Okay, we've got a live caller standing by, but uh, we had a very similar question to the one you just answered, but she ended it by saying as follows, um, I believe that uh, you had in one of your previous messages from uh, Sunday morning uh, said that you wrote a paper on the topic of women as pastors, and if so, she'd be very interested to read it. Is there any place she can get a hold of that paper? No, I wrote it in seminary, and it was adopted by a large evangelical church in Dallas. I don't know if they still have it. Um, the last time I had it, it was on what they call a floppy disk. <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah. I mean, the thin kind that yeah. you could shake. Mm-hmm. And I finally threw those away because I couldn't get uh, get some of those things to, to come forward. But um, anyway, I would say maybe more complete would just be to listen to my messages because I deal with the kind of issues that I dealt with in the paper. So listen to those two messages from first Timothy and you'll get basically the paper in voice and you can, you can stop it and transcribe whatever you want. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. He has a question about the rapture. Listener, are you there? Yes, sir. Hey, thanks for calling today. Yeah. How can I help? Yes, I, so I attend a Methodist church right here in Georgia, and Savannah, and uh, they uh, that type of material. They said that the rapture is not true because in Genesis, when the flood came, and the, the phrase that they used to defend the, against the rapture is that they were taken away. So the people were taken away by the flood. So you don't want to be the ones be taken away. So that's why they don't believe in the rapture. Because they say because you want to be the one in the boat, not the one be taken away. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So if it's a 
back as a the rapture teachings are biblical or, or not biblical? Well, this is a great question. So let me see if I can respond. If you really pressed your pastor hard enough, remember the word rapture is a theological term that comes from the Latin language. And so there's a lot of terms in Christianity that we use that come from Latin because for 1,000 years, virtually the sole translation that Christians across the planet used was the Latin translation that was done by Jerome. Jerome was a guy who lived in the 4th century, and he uh, sat in a little cave, um, not 50 yards from where the Lord Jesus was born. And in Jerome's cave, he already knew Greek. He learned Hebrew from the rabbis in Bethlehem, and he produced a translation of the Bible in Latin. It's a good translation. Latin has real limitations because it doesn't speak with the greatest specificity as Greek does. But the term rapture comes from Jerome's translation of the Latin Bible, rapto, and so we speak of the the rapture of the church. But let me read it to you just as it reads in the Bible. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are dead. Why? So that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We all grieve when we lose someone we love, but we don't grieve like pagans who have no guarantee. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's our confession that we make at baptism, even so God will bring with him with him from where? From heaven, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. When you die absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. And so if I drop dead in this chair in this studio, Rick may have to scrape my body off the studio floor, but the person inside of this human body would immediately be in the presence of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord— that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. One of the questions they had was not if the resurrection takes place. That was well established. That was an Old Testament doctrine as well. They knew, but what they were concerned was was the timing and what implications it would be for a believer who died before Jesus returned. So one, he assures them, Jesus is bringing the departed spirits back from heaven And those of us who are alive when Jesus comes will not precede those who have already fallen asleep or died. For Christ himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There it is, caught up. It's two words in English. It's the Greek word harpazo in the Greek New Testament. And it's the word rapto, and so, or raptora, the form of the word, so we get the word rapture in our theological realm. It's like the word trinity. The word trinity comes from the Latin uh, that affirms the triunity of God. It's not a strict Bible word, but the word rapture is. It's just not found in the English Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible. So what I'm trying to say is if you press your pastor hard enough— would you say, well, do you believe in the catching up of the church, that um, the Bible will bring back departed spirits and reunite them in the body and raise them up? If he's going to say yes, then he's going to say yes. Okay, so you believe in the rapture. Oh, well, yeah, I guess if you mean by that. So that now what we're talking about is the timing of the rapture. When does it take place? Now, 
the passage you're referencing, I'm assuming you're referencing this passage, is in Matthew chapter 24. Um, In the middle of the week, uh, Jesus, of course, made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and uh, one day he goes in, he cleanses a temple and so forth, and Anyway, um, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples ask him a question about the glorious buildings in the temple itself that's up there in the Temple Mount. Today, the Dome of the Rock pretty much sits where the second temple that uh, Zerubbabel built after Solomon's was destroyed sits. And and Jesus says, look, not one stone is going to stand upon another. Uh, Last week, I was in Jerusalem, and I showed the people, a pile of stones. They said, these stones right here are a physical, visible fulfillment of what Jesus said. These are the temple stones that came from the top of the temple mount. And they were all broken up and separated one from another because when, though Herod um, built a magnificent temple and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a Titus Vespucian, the general, commanded not to burn the temple. And yet it ended up being caught on fire and all the gold that was overlaid everywhere melted and crept between the stones. And as Josephus records, the Roman soldiers literally pried apart the rocks to get the gold out. Not one stone would be left upon another. And then Jesus goes on and he speaks of this coming day when uh, he will come a second time. And he gives all of these different prophecies that have to be fulfilled for for Jesus to, to come back. And, and, of course, there's a lot of things that have to happen uh, for, for that to finally happen. And anything that's not happened will happen in these final seven years. But he reminds us of that day and hour. No one knows. I'm reading from Matthew 24, 36. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's making a parallel between the days of Noah and the coming of Christ. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, he makes a second parallel between the coming of the Son of Man and the days of Lot. And the days of Lot, if you remember, were days of moral um, perversion, days of homosexuality. So you've got days like Noah, drunkenness, sexual immorality, violence, and you've got days like Lot that were days of just sheer homosexuality, perversion. That's going to be the atmosphere when the Lord Jesus comes back. So then he makes this statement, and I think this is what you were referring to. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. So your pastor is absolutely correct that you want to be the one left behind. See, unfortunately, this has been used out of its context by a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey, who for the best we can tell is the first one to popularize this interpretation that this was in reference to the rapture. It's not. The rapture is not in view in Matthew 24 and 25. The second coming is. So there are two distinct events. First, he comes for the church. 
then he comes back to the earth. We meet him in the air. We just read, we shall meet the Lord in the air. In Zechariah chapter 14 at the second coming, Messiah's feet touch the Mount of Olives. He literally splits it in two. And as Revelation 20 will um, indicate, and we're going to study that in our exposition of Revelation, Lord willing, when we get there, we will see that Messiah Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years upon the earth. So just like in Noah's day, um, the people who were taken away were those who were taken away in judgment in the great flood, and those who were left in the ark were the saved ones. Even so, at the second coming, those who are taken away in judgment are the sorry ones, and those who are left to rule and reign with the church who comes back with Jesus are the happy ones because they enter into the kingdom. So um, I think what you have to ask and answer for yourself, though, and it might be that your pastor just has this one big event that takes place at the end of the tribulation, and Jesus comes back to the earth, and, and then he takes away unbelievers in judgment, and he doesn't have a pre-tribulational rapture. Huge problems with that, which I will go through very carefully when we come to Revelation chapter 20. So stay with me on that. But so what your pastor is saying is, I think, correct. Um, But it fails to distinguish the fact that Christ first comes for the church in the air. And so those are two distinct events. Does that help? Do you want to ask a follow-up? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Great. So hang with me in my study of Revelation. And, you know, I gave you a relatively short answer, but uh, it will get much, much, much more detailed as we come to Revelation chapters 19 and 20. We're just in the 16th chapter right now, and we've pushed, pushed the pause button for a few weeks because Community Bible Church, maybe you're listening, you're in Varnville or Hampton or um, Pineville or Grays or some of those towns out there. Grays, South Carolina, we just opened a brand new campus last Sunday. And so we're letting them catch up a little bit. Uh, They're listening to three sermons, and then hopefully by the first Sunday in February, the latest might be the second Sunday in February, the campuses will be sync, and we'll be live streaming directly to those particular campuses. But um, if you live out in Grays, South Carolina, in that area, and you're looking for a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, if you're in a good church, we don't want to take you away. Be there, support your pastor. But if you're in between churches or you're in a church where there's just a lot of compromise and you know there's not faithfulness to the scriptures, we invite you to graze. If you go to communitybiblechurch.us, it will tell you how to get directions from your house to that doorstep. Is there still a map thing in there, Rick? There sure is, and people can get a direct uh, link there by going to communitybiblechurch.us slash graze. Okay, all right, and that will tell you how to find Gray is uh, as we have our second service, uh, Lord willing, this coming Sunday. Let's go to the next question. Very good. Uh, Katie from Hilton Head writes, how do we balance the understanding that believers' sins are forgiven with the fact that we'll have to give an account to God to our, for our lives? What happens if we end up with a poor account to give? And she gives a couple of references, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14.12. Well, those are certainly two central passages that deal with the judgment of Christians. And it's important in our theology that we distinguish between the great white throne judgment 
which is the judgment that is described in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And the only people, if you read the chapter carefully, who are present are unbelievers. The unbelievers of all time will be raised up before the great white throne of Christ. That has not happened. Unbelievers, when they die today, they go to Hades. It's a place of torment. But uh, Hades will, all the people in Hades are going to be brought up before the throne of Christ. And the final judgment will take place of all unbelievers. And God is waiting for the final time because sometimes even after our death, some of the decisions that we have made go on. Some of the fallen wicked decisions that unbelievers make go on after they die. And God will wait until every aspect of his perfect justice is expressed at that great white throne judgment. So that's one judgment. But there is a judgment that believers will face. And so Paul says, for instance, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, and he uses a plural pronoun because he includes himself in this judgment. Therefore, we, meaning myself and you Corinthians and all the apostles, have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And so he uses the term home or absent to describe, you know, whether you're alive in the body or home and absent with the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word here is bema. And there have been many bema seats that have been unearthed. I've stood at the one on in Philippi, and I've stood at least at the base of where the one existed, where Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate's judgment seat. It's the same word, bema. And bemas were used either to inflict punishment, as Pilate did upon Christ and dictated that he be scourged and then crucified. Uh, And if you go with me to Israel, there are different spots, and that's what we would consider a class A spot. You will stand on the very stones. There's a whole church built over it where Jesus stood before Pilate. The elevated platform is gone, but the stones and even the little game that the Roman soldiers played when they uh, were entertaining themselves before the victim was crucified, you'll see those very imprints in the stone. But a Bema seat was also a place of reward. It's used positively inside and outside of the Bible. It's used positively, for instance, at the Isthmian Games. If Rick and I were running in the first century a 100-meter run and Rick won, he would receive a wreath. Uh, If I lost, I wasn't punished or beaten or whipped. I just didn't get a crown. And so Paul says we must all stand before the Bema of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So your deeds are evaluated. And and by the way, in Romans 14, Verse 12, he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to give an account. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he's dealing with leaders in the church, but Paul extends the application in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14 to every believer that a day is coming when God will test the quality of every man's work. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. If you read the book of Acts, you discover that it was the apostle 
Paul who planted the church in Corinth. He laid the foundation, and of course, the church was not built on Paul or a pope or a man or a denomination. It was built on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said, I laid a foundation, another is building on it. And he's mentioned some of the others who'd come in after him, various teachers who preached. And But he warns, let each be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The church is built on Christ. He is the rock. And so he reminds us that as those in ministry, and by application, we're all ministers, we're all servants of Christ, whether you earn your living from the gospel or whether you're a truck driver or whether you're a physician or an attorney or a plumber, you all serve the living God, and you can serve him with two kinds of building materials. He says, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. The day of evaluation will show it. How so? Because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So the kind of work that you're doing would constitute gold, silver, precious stone kind of work or wood, hay, and straw. Now, sometimes people try to delineate those. I I think that's pushing the text. I think he's not saying, well, here's what a gold work looks like. Here's what a silver work looks like. I, I think he's primarily reminding us there's two categories. And listen, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds than a truckload of hay at the judgment seat of Christ because my works are going to be tested with fire. And so he says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? A loss of reward. This is not purgatory, as our Roman Catholic friends teach, using this in a in a non-canonical book, a book that is not inspired, the book of Maccabees that doesn't belong in the Bible, but it's in theirs. Uh, this is not purgatory. The loss here is a loss of reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So let me bring it down to your question. This is not an issue of forgiveness, but think about it for a moment. As a forgiven person, and if you've been saved, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, you should be, and it's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. You can know that you know that you know that you're saved. Not hope, wonder, think, but know. These things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you can know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know. And if you're not absolutely 100% certain, go to communitybiblechurch.us or searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation. Would you like to have God as your friend? Or come here and in person this Sunday evening at Community Bible Church, and it would be my pleasure, as I do very often every month, share it with visitors and people who want to get this nailed down. But the moment you get saved, all of your sin, past, present, and future, is eternally forgiven. But as a saved person, the Bible says we all stumble in many ways. And some choose, when they fall, to stay down through disobedience. Now, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but only a season. That's what makes it tempting. Don't tell, you know, someone that there's, um, there's no pleasure in sin. There is pleasure in sin. That's what makes it tempting. But with that said, there's consequences to sin, and the devil uses the pleasure of sin that is just for a short time to get us to think that his ways are better than God's ways. And sometimes when people get down, they stay down. Of course, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in sin is the unbeliever 
can enjoy it fully, I suppose, though he ultimately is reproved because God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that he shall reap. So an unbeliever may have a wife and family and he goes and commits multiple adulteries and his wife leaves him and he's lost his family. That's a consequence, believer or unbeliever. Um, But a believer in sin is ultimately miserable because the Holy Spirit who lives in you is grieved. The most unhappy people in this world are Christians who are out of fellowship with God. And that's why the Bible tells Christians to confess their sin, not to be eternally forgiven, but to restore the closeness of God. Jesus said he who has had his uh, had a bath doesn't need to be bathed again. He only needs to have his feet washed. And in John 13, he taught lessons not simply on servanthood, but on serving the Lord with clean feet. As you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. You don't need salvation's bath again. Once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But sometimes you have to have your feet clean. Now, here's the point. If you're out of fellowship with God, you're walking with dirty feet. If you're walking with dirty feet, then the Holy Spirit who lives in you is not filling you. And when the Holy Spirit is not filling you and empowering you, then all the service that you are doing is done in the energy of the flesh, and it's what we would constitute as a wood, hay, stubble kind of work. Whereas works that are done in the power of the Holy Spirit are gold, silver, and precious stone kind of works. Look, you may be on a job site today, and you're pounding a hammer or using a saw. And if you're doing that for the glory of God and in fellowship with God, that that constitutes as well eternal reward. Sometimes we say, well, eternal reward is when I teach a Sunday school class. That may be one aspect of eternal reward, but God evaluates our whole life. And so God says to slaves, and there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of slaves in the first century when he wrote this, that to do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not for men, knowing that it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. God looks at the work that we do, everything that we do. And certainly if we're growing and our minds are being renewed, we also want to do those things that are direct engagements in the kingdom of God. So there's coming a time where it has nothing to do with forgiveness, but when you're out of fellowship with God, that's just wood, hay, and stubble. God's not going to throw your sin back in your face. But that time out of fellowship with God does not constitute gold, silver, precious stone kind of work. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it will just be burned up. So this is a really, 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 really important question this individual is asking. And what I would suggest, I think it's Katie from Hilton Head that you do, is you go to searchthescriptures.org, you click on the Back to Basics series, and it's uh, 30 weeks of the 45 weeks we teach every Sunday at Community Bible Church. And one of the lessons is how to develop an eternal perspective. And we talk about this. We spend three weeks on it. I just spent 11 minutes on it. We spend three weeks on it, uh, three 55-minute sessions. And you'll really get a biblical theology on the question you're asking. All right, very good. Chris from Decorah, Iowa writes, I was reading in 1 John 5 and came across verse 17, which says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. I thought all sin leads to death, or maybe I overlooked something, but would you please clear this up? Well, um, it's important when you see the word death, it's used in different realms. Like, for instance, when God said to Adam, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely. 
But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will die. Now, when Adam ate the fruit, did God hold a funeral service that day? Of course not. So you have to immediately think, well, God, knowing that he can't lie, he must mean something else by death. And so there are three kinds of death that are delineated in the Bible. There's spiritual death. Adam immediately died on the inside that day. The lights went out. And that's why we must have the lights turned back on. You must be born again to see and to enter the kingdom of God. He began to die physically, and so now we're all born dying. We're getting older and older, and the third kind of death is what the Bible calls eternal death. So John is asking, John here is dealing here with physical death. The Bible reminds us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, that some of the Corinthians had experienced premature death. They died sooner than God would have wanted them to have died. Why? because of their rebelliousness. They came even to the Lord's table with sin in their heart. And the warning to examine oneself is not given to the unbeliever, but it's actually given to the Christian to warn him not to flippantly take into his hands the very elements that symbolize the price by which he was bought and that it is not his own and that he is to glorify God in his body. And when we flippantly participate in the Lord's table, as some of those Corinthians did, some even drunk, some gluttonous. Uh, They, in the process, were inviting weakness, sickness, and premature death. Some were weak, some were sick, and some had died. And so all sickness is not related to living in a fallen world. Some of it is an expression of the discipline of God. And when you see a person who is experiencing as a direct consequence of God's discipline, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Um, Someone who's experiencing some physical ailment that is directly related to their sin. Maybe they're under the discipline of the elders of the local assembly, which is what James talks about. And the healing he's talking about is physical healing, and they're under the the discipline of God because of their sin. You, you don't pray for God to heal them. You pray for them to repent. And then the byproduct is God in his mercy may choose to heal them. So First John is dealing with physical death, a sin that leads to early um, ending of this physical life that God has orchestrated for us. Well, another perfectly good hour has transpired in We're glad that you could be with us today. These broadcasts are always posted at wagp.net. Some people email their questions to us, and then the questions are posted with that Bible line. So if you can't listen physically at 11 o'clock on Tuesdays, you can see, oh, yeah, there's my question, the fifth one, and I'm just going to scan through the bar and listen to the answer that Dr. Brogy shared that day. Thanks for being with us. I hope you have a great day. And if you live in Grays, South Carolina... And in that area, we invite you to go to communitybiblechurch.us forward slash graves and find out about our new church campus. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.